Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to The Rest is Politics. Question time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And a lot going on. And we've done our emergency pod, people haven't heard it, which I thought was very exciting. Um, and then we've done our main podcast. And now we've got a lot of questions coming in on a huge number of different issues. But one that I thought we'd start with is Dr. W. Elliot Boomer. If Scotland were an independent country, and I'm asking this knowing you're both ardent unionists, although I think I'm more of an ardent unionist than I think, you are. I think you're ardenter than you're I am. Ardent. So it calls for a stretch of the imagination. What should be the priorities of the Scottish government? A closer relationship with England or a closer relationship with Europe? If Scotland were independent, mm-hmm. interesting. If Scotland were independent, which I don't think is going to happen in my lifetime, if Scotland were independent, they'd have to focus on both. But I think actually one of the lessons of Brexit is that they'd have to address an awful lot of complexities about the unravelling of the relationship with the rest of the UK. So I suspect England would be... Yeah. That's Do you agree the, with that? That's the paradox, and it's the problem with both Brexit and Scottish independence, that the movement is driven by a rejection, but then what you have to do is then spend the next few years really focusing on a very, very close relationship to get yeah. the best relationship you can, which is psychologically difficult because the people that have pushed for independence have amped up the anti-English thing, and then you mm. realise that you're going to have to come to a lot of compromises, lot make a lot of concessions. I mean, you know, something like three quarters of Scotland's trade business links are are into England, not mm. out to Europe, mm. and it would be very, very, very tough for the Scottish economy. It'd be an amplified version of what Britain went through leaving the European Union. Now, you and I were in Dublin together briefly last week, and after you left, I was at a, a dinner with somebody of the people who'd been at the event that we were at. And I I did a round table show of hands. You know how I love my show of hands. And I was asking them their view as to whether they thought there'd be a United Ireland in my lifetime. I think that was the time frame. And not a single hand was raised. Gosh. And I think that is a major shift. And I think the answer, the reason for that is part of, I've actually written my new European column about this because I was quite taken back by it is I I think the reasons are them looking north and seeing a bit of a basket case with this political stalemate going on, but also looking east at us in Great Britain and thinking, do we really want to kind of get that much closer? Um, Anyway, I found it very interesting. And I said to the people there, do you think there would have been the same answer 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago? They said, no, absolutely not. Right. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, Here's a question from Tommy Heatley. Alistair, would you put Sinn Féin in the column of the three Ps? So to remind people, the three Ps are populism, polarisation and post-truth. And the question is, is Sinn Féin a populist party? And to remind people, in case they've forgotten, <laughs> Sinn Féin was the political wing of the IRA, right? And, you know, we, we're in the middle of a huge controversies about people chanting Palestine should be free from the river to the sea. But of course, the IRA was absolutely committed to destroying the British state in Northern Ireland. Had no, you know, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting question about recognizing somebody's right to exist. But certainly, traditionally, Sinn Fein and the IRA did not recognize the right of the British state in Northern Ireland to exist, and was associated with terrorism. So, 
Tommy Heatley says he feels that Sinn Féin are a populist party. FFFG are not perfect. In the foil Fine Gael. The big Irish political party is not perfect, but I think they're working well together. Sinn Féin seems to have simple answers for very complicated problems. Love the pipes on the Late Late Show. And I wanted to pin you on that. What, the pipes on the Late Late Show? No, pipes on the Late Late Show. I think we can just take I, as I, granted. I played the fields of Athen Rye. We're doing, doing, you did well on that. I think you often are a bit soft on Sinn Féin and therefore you'll be a bit reluctant to acknowledge what most of my Irish friends think, which is they're pretty horrified by it and think people are forgetting their history too quickly and that they are a populist party. I think they are a populist party. In that, I think they are offering very simple solutions to incredibly complicated problems. Housing and health are the things that they're really campaigning against the big two on. And I actually think that round table, I think part of the reason they may have shifted is because they're actually now, as business community, confronting the possibility, if not probability, that they'll have a Sinn Féin government. And oh, sorry, how, how does that affect their views on whether or not there's going to be a United Ireland? Well, I, I don't know whether that wasn't, I wasn't asking yeah, them about yeah. that, but I wonder whether, I, because I think that they think that United Ireland is, is like, in a way, independence is a driving mission for the SNP in Scotland, that United Ireland is a driving mission for Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin North that, that was that, that was yeah, that, and they'll that. make a big thing yeah. of it in the election. And whereas the, that community that I was with, pretty high-heeled, they were all chairs yeah, of companies yeah. and boards and stuff that they would be possibly not very favourably disposed towards Sinn Féin from the business perspective. So therefore, that might have coloured their judgment on the question of United Ireland. And, and just to explain again to listeners, that's because Sinn Féin's traditionally seen as a pretty left-wing yeah. force. Yeah. yeah. So populist, yes. Polarising, I'd say no, in that I think they're trying to project themselves in a much more cooperative kind of way. So I don't think I don't think they're going out and saying, if you're not with us, you're a terrible person, which is kind of what polarization is about. And on post-truth, I mean, you've got to remember, on post-truth, you talk about the the old days when the IRA would, would be doing all sorts of stuff, and Sinn Féin line was that they, they had nothing to do with the right. IRA. So that, that was, that was pre-post-truth in yep. a way. But I think what Mary Lou MacDonald as leader and Michelle O'Neill in the North are both trying to do is to project themselves as modern democratic leaders. So they would, I would say they're populist. Some of your Irish friends might say they're polarising and post-truth, but I'd say possibly less than they used to be. But I think one of the uncomfortable questions, if we talk about Giorgia Maloney, the populist leader in Italy, or Marine Le Pen in France, is that many, oh, the Swedish Democrats, many of these parties try to rebrand themselves yeah. as being moderate, distance themselves from their slightly well, extreme past. Well, Le Pen turning up at the yeah. anti-Semitism yeah. march. Part of the question is, how much are you prepared to forget about who they were pretty recently mm. and the movements in which these people grew up? How much are you prepared to take at face value? Leaders who grew up in those movements suddenly saying, oh, no, I, we're nothing to do with that anymore. We're now, mm. you know, friendly, but progressive that, but, and, Democrats. And that's, that's something that, that Fina Foyle and Fina Gale are having to wrestle with because when I was on The Late Late Show, I was on with this this guy who's a very, very smart guy. He's, a, he's got a very successful podcast. He's a comedian. He's a writer called Blind Boy who, who, who wears a, a plastic bag over his head everywhere he goes because he doesn't want to be recognized when he's out and about. But I was talking about how I think actually there's some good politicians in, in Ireland and I was mentioning, I thought it was amazing the way that this sort of, you know, you've got you've got the two main parties in, co so that they mm. swap the role of yep. Tisha from Michal mm. Martin, mm. now Leo Varadka. And he said, and he got a laugh for it and a round of applause, as far as I'm concerned, they're just two cheeks of the same arse, um, which is a kind of nice, easy jibe to make. Um, but I think that what Sinn Féin are banking on, actually, is for young people in particular, confronted with really bad housing, 
uh, crisis for them literally to forget, not to know about. So then the Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have got to decide, well, do they attack Sinn Féin for those past but, but relationships This is the question not? for Joe Biden. It's the question for Keir Starmer. It's the question for Macron. It's a question for Schultz in Germany, isn't it? That there could be politicians out there who people admire. I mean, I think we look at Ireland's politicians, we tend to think they're pretty good, pretty serious. Ireland has been a genuine, genuine miracle. I mean, it's now got some of the highest life expectancy educational scores mm. in the whole of Europe, one of the highest GDP per capitas from a very, very poor base. It's a genuinely a miracle. It's, it's quite, I mean, you're right, there are problems in Ireland like housing, but by and large, my goodness, it's performed well. Oh, yeah. And also the sort of the, the progress on the kind of questions of cons what normally social conservatism is, has been huge as well. And also surprising, not quite as much regional inequality as you get in many European countries. And yet, as you say, the populace can still come in and take on even pretty good, pretty formidable, competent politicians and destroy them. Mm. I think the next Irish election will be really, really interesting. Very interesting. And where he's, where Blind Boy has got a point about, you know, two cheeks of the same arse, I mean, I wouldn't phrase it like that, but, but I think unless you do know the history of Ireland, actually sort of working out the difference between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael is not always straightforward. I mean, it's not, you know, generally people would say, oh, well, Varadkar is more of a Tory, but... It's kind of not as simple as that. Just for my final one on Ireland, um, what did you make of the Irish president and his position on Palestine? And just remind people what happened there. So the Irish president, Michael Higgins, who's a very, very popular guy and pretty left wing, he made a very, very outspoken statement on what's happening in the Middle East. And again, I asked the business leaders what they thought. And, and, and he they, was wearing a Palestinian he scarf. He was wearing a Palestinian scarf. He was very, very strongly, you'd put him on the pro-Palestinian side, which historically Ireland has, and, yeah, has always and been. I, I saw an interview with an Israeli diplomat saying that they see Ireland as almost the most difficult country for them to deal with in the whole of the I think European Ireland, Union. I think yeah. they see Ireland, Ireland and Spain as the most sort of, yeah. you know, yeah. they define it as anti-Israel. I've got a very good friend in, in Ireland who actually does some work with Israel, who, who says that it is a difficult place to have this debate. But interestingly, the business leaders again, I did another show of hands on that one, they were they were not happy about that. They felt that that was a, an overstepping of the president's mark. Very good. Okay. Now, how will the US election impact UK Labour anti-bias? Which will be more beneficial for the Labour Party, a general election prior to the US election or after it? Or will the impact of one not affect the other? So let's just think this through. So I suppose there are, there are four possibilities. There's an election before which Biden wins, an election before which Trump wins, an election after which Biden wins, an election after which Trump wins. Which marginally might be more of a problem for the Labour Party, more of an advantage. I think the ideal for Labour would be an election before which Biden wins, which takes away that this is a sort of major question. It will be a big question. If the president, if the American presidential election doesn't happen before a, a general election here, then Labour will legitimately and constantly be asked. And I mean, you could imagine a situation where Labour end up saying, well, we don't comment or interfere in the elections of other countries. I don't think that will happen because I think it'll be so clear that a Labour government would prefer to work with Biden than with Trump. So I would I would say that would be the the, the trickiest would be an American election before which Trump wins. No, in fact, it might even be an American election after which Trump wins because uh, you'd be sort of working with Biden up to the point of, and then that could get very, very difficult. Yeah, yeah. Okay. What about books? Should we talk, talk about books? So some, This is Gavin Dingwall. 
Dingwall, the home of Ross County Football Club. Uh, very good. You knew that, didn't you? I did not until this moment, but that's a very good, very okay, good, yeah. very good, very good uh, <laughs> insight. Thank you. All right. So Gavin says, other than your own, what are your favourite of the many political books that have been published this year? I'm going to start with a book that wasn't published this year, but which is very relevant this year. And that is a book by my old friend Donald McIntyre, who I'm sure you know, journalist, spent a lot of time in the Middle East. And his book is quite is simply called Gaza. Uh, and if you really want to know the history of Gaza, then that is a book worth getting. I'm also going to give a shout out to Chris Bryant for his book Code of Conduct. Similar theme, Ian Dunt, How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't. And I think a book I've mentioned on the podcast before, Russell Jones wrote a book called The Tyranny of Nostalgia which is a really, really good analysis of why our economy is not as strong as it should be. Well, so my, my recommendations on politics more broadly, um, I, did a, I did an event yesterday with Mary Beard, who's mm -hmm. just written a book called Emperor of Rome. And we had a really- Oh, Rory, before you go on, yeah. before you go on, we had a question a couple of weeks ago, which we didn't get around to, but also I was also asked this by somebody called Alice in the swimming pool the other day, mm -hmm. very keen listener to the podcast, said she'd love to ask you in particular- how often do you think about the Roman Empire? It's a weird question, though, isn't it? That's but it's being asked a lot about the, the world. I, well, I mean, I obviously think about it a lot. So, how many uh, times a day would you think about the Roman Empire? Oh, um, five or six. Really? Yeah, yeah, I think about the Roman Empire a lot. Yeah, Mary Beard and I had a very detailed discussion uh, about Roman emperors yesterday for an hour and a half uh, on a, on a stage at the Cadogan Hall. So yesterday you thought about it I a lot. Thought about it a great deal, and people interested in it. So Mary Beard, who people will know, has written a beautiful book, not about specific emperors, but about the nature of power in Rome and the way in which power is play-acting, the role of women in Roman politics, because of course women were not emperors, never became emperors. And I think it's, 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 I think she was actually really good on this stage at thinking about some of the echoes between Roman politics and British politics. Including today? Including today, yeah. Mm. I, suppose, I suppose bringing Cameron back is sort of, we described it as being Victorian, but you could probably go back even go, further. Go back to the Romans get in. A couple of AI books, if people ah. um, haven't particularly been picking up on that, from people we've interviewed on Leading, and if you haven't heard, do listen to them. Mustafa Suleiman's Coming Wave. and His Reed. book is getting a lot of love in the bookshops, I've yep. noticed. Reid Hoffman's Impromptu, which he wrote yep. with ChatGBT. Yasha Monk, mm -hmm. who I think we've, we've talked about getting on the podcast, and I think we should at some point, has written a really powerful book called The Great Experiment. And Yasha Monk is very interested in two different types of things at the moment. He's very interested in the way that immigration works and multicultural societies are formed. And he challenges the populist far right on that. He's also very interesting, though, increasingly on challenging the far left on identity politics. In some ways, we should get him on, but he's trying to stand up for a vision of liberalism, which is neither national identity politics nor mm. other forms of identity politics. The, the book I'm most looking forward to yep. next year is that uh, I'm not giving up on my attempts to get Angela Merkel onto the podcast. Oh, very good. That would be a real coup. And I know that her, one of her key advisors is a regular listener. Very good. So Merkel is not doing interviews at the moment because she's writing her book and memoirs which I think will be a great read. Yeah, let me, let me put in a final plug for a book that I've just finished, which hasn't yet been published. It's about to come out and people can pre-order by Gary Stevenson called Trading Game. Gary Stevenson, working class guy from London who became a currency trader in a bank, 
just before 2008. And it is the most chilling, terrifying account of the madness of those banks and their culture. I mean, I sometimes, you know, there I am thinking politics is the most noxious, disgusting, bullying, horrifying game in the world. But when he describes these city traders in full roar, you see something absolutely appalling. I mean, both the way that he was treated by Citibank, the way in which they blew up the economy, the way in which they made money, the way in which their bonuses, and just the culture, the day-to-day culture of those trading floors. So Gary Stevenson, trading game. Now, we should just say that Lots of people I know will have got your book and my last book through Cole's Books, um, which is a fantastic bookshop down in Bicester. And any of the books that we mention on the podcast, at any time, you can get 10% off at Cole's Books by becoming a Trip Plus member and see all the books we mention every week by signing up to the newsletter. Let's take a break. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Alistair Campbell. And with me, Rory Stewart. And a plug for our leading interview with Comfort Iro, who is a British Nigerian who is the head of International Crisis Group and gave us, I thought, a stunning interview looking at crises around the world, an amazing introduction to the complexity of the world today. What do you think? No, I really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. Her work is meant to be about the crisis group exists to try to prevent crises. <laughs> there are a lot of crises that have not been prevented. I don't think we can put the blame entirely on door them. Yeah. at all. Yeah. Um, but there was a lot to talk about. And and it was a reminder of, even though we pride ourselves on talking about stuff that 
much of the British mainstream media doesn't focus on. There's an awful lot of other stuff that Goodness sake. you just yeah. can't, we yep. don't have yep. time had, for. You know, she got us into Haiti and yeah. the Philippines and Venezuela. Yeah. Yemen and yep. all these different places. And I'm also, I'm particularly, I'm really looking forward to another leading interviewee that we've got coming up, which is Tony Klug. This is a guy who's who's represented both sides in the in the Middle East peace process debate. So I'm looking forward to that. Great. Looking forward to that too. Thomas van der Ville. Can you give your insights on the upcoming Dutch election and why Omzicht and his new party, NSC, are doing so well in the polls? Have you been following this at all? No, come tell us about Dutch. Well, this guy, Peter Omzicht, is a sort of uh, centre-right kind of politician who's set up a new party, the new social contract, a few months ago. And he's currently leading the polls. Um, and this is an election that was caused by Mark Rutter. His coalition collapsed. Uh, I think he's like I think he's onto his fourth coalition, Bill like Merkel, but he's now not standing. So you've got all the all the leaders who are standing for the main parties are new. You've got this new party. You've got Franz uh, Timmerman, European Commissioner, who's leading a kind of left uh, Labour Green sort of coalition. But Omtzigt is doing really, really well in the polls. And, and what do they stand for? And what do they, they do? They're, they're quite interesting. That he, he's he's from a sort of centre right background, but he's more left wing on some issues. So he's kind of he's a centre. He's, he's, he's seen as a sort of Macron figure. I don't think he's seen as a Macron figure. And also, interestingly, he said that he doesn't intend to be prime minister. So he's saying he's leading the party, vote for the party, and then they're going to decide who will be prime minister. He's not come out of nowhere in terms of being quite well known in the Netherlands, but he's, but his party has literally just been formed almost for this election. So it's got elements uh, of Macron. What's, 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 what's the platform? Why is he so hugely popular? What's the thing? What are they fed up with? What are they doing? What's the, think, why do it, voters want him? Because he's basically saying he's sensible on the economy, but look after people kind of thing. And uh you know, fairly obvious stuff, but in a... You wouldn't thought you can blow up a political system with that kind but of But he message. isn't really blowing it up because one of the problems that has led to this election is the that, that small parties can emerge and, and do very, very well. And if you, look at, if you look at the full list, I haven't got it in front of me, but take a look at the full list of all the parties that are standing. I mean, there are so many of them, but they will get some votes. And, you know, because it's a portion of representation, some of them will end up in in Parliament. But it's a very, very interesting one. And, you know, maybe because Mark Rutter was there and was seen as quite a strong figure and he held things together, him going, I think, has possibly just opened up the space for people to look at other people differently. Franz Timmerman, as well, is doing he's doing pretty well. Who we may get onto the podcast. I would love to get him on the podcast. And we definitely will, yep. if he becomes Prime Minister, we'd like to have Mr. Peter Omtzigt. And, and, and I can, I can, I can try my one sentence of Dutch out on it. That's very good. That's very good. Can you remind us of your one sentence of Dutch? the fail of my daughter's spelled. No, that is impressive. Yeah. Do you know what it means? No. I've played my bagpipes too much. Very good. Very good. That was as true as well as beautiful. We should keep tabs on that and maybe talk about it again after the event. But Peter Omtzigt, definitely worth watching. Is Githen has written to us saying, are Haig and Miliband the most influential politicians in the UK? Are there disastrous changes to leadership elections within oh. their parties, largely to blame for Brexit, Johnson, Corbyn, Trust, and Sunak? So clever. Initially, I thought this was a question about whether, whether William Haig and David Miliband should be brought some, back. Some, yeah, 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 but this but is about Ed Miliband and William Haig. And let me start on that. I absolutely agree with these questions. I think the changes to the leadership elections that allowed Boris Johnson to come through allowed uh, Jeremy Corbyn to come through, allowed Liz Truss to come through, were catastrophic. And at least the way the Conservative Party 
used to organize things before these Hague reforms, which allowed the MPs who actually work day in, day out with these people, knew that Boris Johnson was somebody who could not be trusted and would not have voted for him, I think, if they hadn't sensed that the power Labour, the party and the party in the country would vote for him, was a much better system. And uh, you can also make a democratic argument for it. I mean, it's difficult uh, mm. sometimes to get the head around. But the point is that at least the MPs are elected, whereas the members of the Conservative Party in the country, two and a half million when my mother was a member in the 1950s, now uh, only just over 100,000 members they get effectively to select the prime minister. So this is totally much less democratic, even though it's more people than the MPs, it's much less democratic because unlike the MPs, they're not elected. So yeah. well, I would I, like to return to a system where the MPs chose the leader. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting because th this is where sometimes you have to be honest with people about the limitations of, of the franchise and democracy and the, the systems that you have. Uh, I remember Bruce Grocott, who was now in the House of Lords and was Tony's parliamentary private secretary, and I remember at the time of the changes in Labour system that he was saying, oh, this, this, is not, this is not sensible, this is not clever. The one thing the MPs always have in mind, first of all, they know the contenders better. And secondly, they have a, a broader interest in making sure they try to get the right person. Whereas members will be a little bit, if anything, more divorced from where real public opinion might be. So he was always very, very, very against this. I remember that. And, and of course, it's a hard thing to argue against. What are you saying that the members shouldn't have a say? Well, no, we're not saying that. We're just saying they shouldn't have as big a say as the MPs. And of course, the other problem is that a lot of MPs aren't terribly well respected in their communities. But I, I broadly agree with you. I, I, th I think that, the, that both the main parties should have another look at how they elect their leaders. Lucy Bishop. I'm a politics student at UCL, looking at what my next steps are for a life in the political sphere, particularly in foreign policy and diplomacy. Do I need a master's civil service fast stream? Any advice based on the requirements and skills needed before I start my career? So I'd say a couple of things on that. And maybe this is just too much my own experience. The first is I would really recommend, if you want to work in foreign policy, getting out and spending some time living in a foreign country and ideally in a country in the global south and in a rural area where you're in somewhere very, very different because one of the biggest challenges in foreign policy is understanding what life is like outside the capital city in a remote rural area in a developing country. So spend a year there. Secondly, I could not recommend the civil service fast stream more. It was life-changing for me. That five years I spent gave me so much of the basic skills of organizing myself, running meetings. How hard is it to get done. onto? It's a competitive exam, but it's a pretty fair meritocratic exam. In the days when I did it, it was largely an IQ test, basically a long IQ test. And then the final stage, you were given some exercises on doing some paper and chairing committees. But I, for the rest of my life, even you know, setting up a charity, it was drawing on that five years basic experience I had in the civil service just set me up for life. Now, listen, this is definitely one for you. Ned Gibbons, why is the far right of the Conservative Party so powerful? The way I see it, their only way out of the current mess is to move towards the centre. But many in the party want to head further to the right. What am I missing? Another question, Amazing Grace, not my daughter, currently appearing in New York, by the way, at the Soho Playhouse. And it's not her, though. Why do the ERG and the right wing of the Tory party hold so much power and sway over their leadership? Are they in the majority? What is it that makes the prime ministers dance to their tune? Well, it's actually not very different from the power that the, the left had with Corbyn and the Labour Party. It's partly that uh, the Tory party members are older and more right wing than the general population. 
it's partly that Boris Johnson bucked the trend in the 2019 election where he got an over 80 seat majority by tilting to the right when the conventional wisdom is that you should fight in the center. But more than any of that, it's that people who are very ideologically charged, people who spend their time in an echo chamber talking to each other, it doesn't matter whether it's Corbynistas with their own particular socialist vision of Britain or whether it's right-wing conservatives with their particular, I don't know what it is quite. I mean, with Liz Truss, it's a sort of distorted tribute act to Margaret Thatcher. With others, it's kind of nationalism. But whatever it is, they operate in an echo chamber. They talk to their party members. They convince themselves that everybody in the country agrees with them. And in the case of both Corbyn supporters and sort of Boris Johnson, Liz Truss supporters, of course, sometimes they're right. There are often things that the centre-ground politicians aren't concentrating on that the public really care about. Mm. So Corbyn was absolutely right to say that the public were very, very angry about the 2008 financial crisis and the way that the banks got away with things and that no centrist party was really gripping that. And unfortunately, I think it probably is true that the right of the Conservative Party has caught on to something when they think that there's a lot of concern amongst the public about immigration. So there will be things that they say which resonate with people, which convince them that they're right about everything. Mm. But the major problem is the way that they can hold the balance of power out of all proportion to their numbers. So these horrible group, from my point of view, at least during Brexit, called the Spartans, led by Marc Francois, who eventually were reduced to a rump of barely kind of 30 people, in the end were able to control the whole party because that was the 30 votes that was well, needed. Well, I, I saw last night, um, I was sort of channel hopping a bit last night, and John Craig on Sky News was reporting from outside this meeting of the so-called new conservatives who'd been briefing that they were the new power in the land. And he said, you could sort of count on two hands how many MPs were there. I think they overstate their power and their power is given, when they say, why did the prime ministers dance to their tunes? It's the fact of the prime ministers dancing to the tunes that gives them their power. And what you've seen post Corbyn with Keir Starmer clearly going in a different direction is that erodes their power. And I think you'll see that now with, this is why Sunak should have done yeah. this right at the start. Yeah. I think what he's done with bringing back Cameron is, is, is going to erode their power and I suspect with before too long, I'll make a prediction that while the other hard right figure, Farage, is making a complete idiot of himself in... What, 1.2 million eating kangaroo 1. testicles? 1.5. Yeah, 1.5 million. Yeah. I was offered a million at one point. Yeah, and you don't think for 1.5 you might change your mind no, when I'm wouldn't. a celebrity? I wouldn't. No? no, I think the tragedy... Look, if Far Far Farage is not stupid, right? And he's probably... Yes, he likes money. Okay. So he's gone there, he's making a lot of money. But I actually do think this is part of his rehabilitation into the Conservative Party. Uh, and just like Trump made his political name on reality TV, Farage is thinking the same, the same game. And what I keep saying to people, any audience that's willing to listen, if we don't get serious about our politics again, we are finished. And what this says, if we now reward somebody... Now, the lesson, the lesson for the Army Celebrity thing is, I mean, Hancock, Matt Hancock did not help his reputation... I hope Farage doesn't help his reputation because I think what the public should say, you're either a serious political figure or you're not, but you can't go down and do stupid reality TV shows and remain a political, serious political figure. But that's his game. So I think the right's power will see itself eroded. And this is how leadership is meant to work. You set a course and then you try and take people with you. Whereas what Sunak has done since he became prime minister is allow his course to be set by everybody else. It's so difficult, though, isn't it? I, I always feel that you are on a tightrope in politics because if you push it too far, you can be toppled. For sure. Which, and and For in sure. the end, Theresa May was brought down by 
by the right. She couldn't. She she tried to confront them. Maybe too late. Maybe she didn't do it in the right way. But in the end, they took her down and they brought in Boris Johnson. But you're absolutely right. Equally, sometimes you face them down in the way that Keir Starmer seems to have done with the left of the Labour Party. And it's gone much better for him than mm. many of the Corbynistas would have predicted. Presumably, many of them would have thought, he's never going to get away with that. We're going to destroy him if he does this. And yeah. he did get away with it. And if you, th- if you think about when Jeremy Corbyn was, was leader of the Labour Party, um, okay, so John McDonnell is still around and you see him from time to time. And, but there, there was a kind of, sort of a dozen MPs who for a time were kind of household names. They were never off the television screen. Well, they're now never on it. And I think that's because there's a different course which is being tracked and people are gathering around that. Now, listen, here's one I, I really want to, to ask because one, I like the chutzpah of her asking it in this way. Ginny Smith, from the editorial team at Sussex Bylines, one of 10 regional titles in the Bylines network of online newspapers, how important do you think citizen journalism is becoming in combating the mainstream right-wing bias and giving local communities a voice? Very. And I, I'm a bit of a fan of the Bylines group. I think they do. Yes, they are broadly in the same political space as I am, I guess. Um, but I think, they, you know, they call out all sides. But I think it's good that we're we're getting these new sort of voices out there. That, I put the new European in the same category. I, I think that the, you know, it, it, new voices that are not part of this kind of right wing media mix, which I think has done massive damage to the country and to our culture. Um, so, yeah, big fan, Ginny. Carry on. Keep up the good work. Last question from me. Katrina Shepard, UBI. Last week, Rory outlined how cash given directly transformed homelessness. Perhaps did you discuss your take on how a universal basic income might work to grow the economy, eradicate poverty, redistribute wealth and access resources? And might the Labour Party ever consider it? I was thinking, I mean, we were joking yesterday about legacy. And I failed to say that if I really was dreaming of a legacy, a legacy I would love to have is being associated with the generation that ended extreme poverty globally. I mean, it remains unbelievably shocking that there are over 700 million people who cannot meet their most basic ends, who are eating once or twice a day, who are dying very young, living in completely unsuitable accommodation, whose kids are not in school, etc. So on an international basis, I think the idea of cash transfers to lift people out of poverty is very strong. But I also think in a domestic context, there is more and more evidence that generous, unconditional cash transfers can really transform the lives of people caught in poverty. And I'm very interested in this because labor can be a bit uneven on this. On the one hand, strong socialist tradition of wanting to tackle inequality and care for the poor. On the other hand, sometimes a temptation to sound pretty kind of macho and aggressive on benefits, cheating and this kind of stuff. Mm. Where where do you think Labour's likely to go on this? Can we expect some fresh radical thinking around addressing poverty in Britain? Well, I think on the universal basic income, Katrina's question, I think I'm right. I could be wrong about this. I'm going to mention another book now, but Ed Miliband's book, Go Big, I can't remember whether this, I think this was one of the sort of proposals that he was at least saying, let's look at this. And he was giving some sort of analysis as to why this might be a good thing. I can't see Labour going for it in this next manifesto, but I think it's one of those things that's that's on the agenda. Interestingly, I think Elon Musk was talking about this as well. Because well a, of the lot whole, of, a lot of the Silicon Valley people like it because they think that AI is going to lead to mass unemployment yeah. and a lot of redistribution of wealth towards the Elon Musk of this world, at which point taxing them 
and giving a universal basic income to mm. people would be the only solution if you ended up with mass unemployment. I, where I am, and I, I sort of blow hot and cold on this. On the one hand, I can see the the logic and the and I can see the political attraction as well. On the other hand, I can see a lot of the difficulties. Do you know what? I think we should do a special on this at some point. Very good. I think we should get a couple of people in. Yep, to do UBI. Yeah, I think I think I think it's a really maybe, really yeah, maybe some of these big ideas. Maybe I think that's a great idea. Maybe we could get someone in on a UBI and Yasha Monk at the same time or something like that, where yeah. we could get um, ideas, radical ideas on on direction of modern democracies. Yeah. Good. Excellent. Well, on that commitment to yet another workload for the rest is politics. I remember. I don't know. Well. I said when I first went to Uri, but I know when I was first approached by this, oh, it won't be more than a few hours a week. It'll just be able to fit it around everything else. Yeah, it's it's getting it's getting a lot. I, I've very kindly occasionally I get approached by um, headhunters trying to convince me to be chairs of boards, and they always say to me, "Yeah, a couple of hours a yes, week." Yeah, yeah, a couple of hours, couple of hours a week. Yeah. And then you talk to the previous board chair, and he's like, "You couldn't do it for another eight days a month." And you're like, "Oh." <laughs> <laughs> anyway, not that we don't enjoy it, Rory. Not that we don't enjoy it. We love it. Thank you all for your wonderful questions. All the best. See you all next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.